From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on Sirius XM, coming at you via Zoom, as we have been for the last year and a half. We've got three quarters of the crew here, Cade Massey hosting along with my Buddies and longtime collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen is away today. He'll be back. We always have some group of us here. And since the pandemic started, we've been treating our first quarter as a pandemic quarter and talking about it. We usually talk about it amongst ourselves, processing the latest studies or whatever the case might be. But we also sometimes bring in some experts, and we're delighted today to have one of those experts We have Emily Oster with us today. She's a professor of economics, Brown University. She is the author of some books you may have heard of or read, Expecting Better in particular, was kind of her debut on the popular front, talking about what women who are pregnant, families who are pregnant should know, make better decisions. And she followed up with Crib Sheet, about parenting small child. She has a new book coming out. We may talk a little bit about it, The Family Firm following the progression of children and family decision-making as they grow up a little bit. But Emily is an empirical economist. She follows where the data go, and the data have taken her into some big COVID controversies over the last year and a half. Emily, welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, listen, you know, we were interested in talking with you over the last few months, thinking about the voice you've had in all the debates around COVID. Um, We think you're we think it's very clear your approach to these issues is oh, is a moneyball approach. It's challenging conventional wisdom with data. Very much seems to be a thread in your work, and we want to hear about how that has gone for you. We've all been trying to make sense of COVID. You've been especially out front on school policy during a time of COVID. Can we start kind of at the end? You know, New York City just opened schools for the first time in eighteen months, and other schools around the country are still going back and forth on this. What do you, what, how would you summarize our current understanding of what schools should do, what schools can do, what happens when schools open, all the relevant yeah. inputs? Yeah, so, so I would say sort of where we are right now, I think we have learned that it is possible to open schools safely with relatively limited spread, certainly based on last year. Um, and so that's good. Um, we think about sort of what, what needs to be in place. Um, I think there's a lot of emphasis on ventilation, some emphasis on masking, some emphasis on some kind of testing, and probably sort of above all of those things, vaccinations for as many people as possible are kind of the, the cornerstone things. Um, you know, there's been, I think for me, what's sort of been interesting about this fall relative to last fall is there's been a huge, huge push to have people in person just and the uh, widespread push to have like as many kids in po- as possible in person. I think every district in the country, I think is, has it as an in-person open, uh, which really wasn't true last year, even though the Delta variant is more contagious than the, than the earlier one. I think there's sort of two things that are going on or one, you know, with the introduction of vaccines, we've been able to protect our, uh, the teachers and the sort of high risk staff that we worry about. But two, I think we've come to realize really, really strongly that an in-person schooling option is tremendously better for kids and that there are a lot of losses to not having that. So I think a big piece of 
the landscape now that wasn't true last year. Because last year we thought like, oh, distance learning can be great. And now it's like distance learning is not great. <laughs> not so great. Okay. Not well, great. We, we, we ran a big experiment on that one, I suppose. And the results um, haven't been very good. Where, where would you say the controversy lies still? Like, Where, where are the disagreements still? So I think the disagreements still mostly lie in, um, well, there's sort of two things. One is what exactly should we do about masks? That's probably the most significant, like, kind of prevention disagreement. Um, there's probably lesser versions of exactly what should we do about testing. But that's so confusing that uh, that it's hard to disagree because nobody can sort of figure out what side they want to be on. So I think masking is kind of this big, this big thing. And I think the other the other disagreement is whether we should allow a remote option. So should we allow parents to not send their kid to school or not? And there's actually a fair amount of disagreement around that that question. Um, so I think those are sort of the two the two axes. Emily, do you have positions or data on either of those two current disagreements or controversies? So I, I would say on the second one, you know, I, I do not have a strong position in some ways on either thing. I'm like always like on the one hand, on the other hand, that's why I'm an economist. Um, but, you know, I think on the on the remote option, I'm very skeptical of having a remote option. I'm very worried that we have sort of like I, I support parental choice, but I think some people are choosing this because we've made them more afraid than they need to be. And because they maybe don't understand the sort of value of the in-person, uh, the in-person schooling. So I'm like worried that people are making that with the wrong amount of information. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of my view there on the masking issue. Like, I think it's a good idea to have masks at the moment. Uh, I hope that there is an off ramp. That's kind of my, that's my position on that. Like the, I, I'm a little worried that we're getting into a place where like my kids are going to be wearing masks in 2027. And that doesn't seem <laughs> like a great, a great position. So I'd sort of like, I'd like there to be masks but I'd like there to be an off-ramp. Um, can, can you, Adi, I'm holding my guys off here. They're both dying for some questions, but let me just ask one more follow-up. What does an off-ramp look like? And God, I've been thinking about the same thing. I've been I taught all morning today in a mask, and I'm wondering, when do I stop teaching in mask? I mean, I think, you know, we want to, there's got to be an off-ramp that's associated with, you know, probably something about hospitalization rates. Um, you know, I'm like, I think there needs to be some point at which we decide, like, you know, this is a seasonal, you know, this is a seasonal flu type respiratory illness. Um, okay. And, and we're going to accept the possibility that people are getting it. Okay. It's not set off by other measures or counterbalanced by other measures. It's just that the environmental conditions are such that there are risks that we're willing to take. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Howdy. Emily, one of the difficult things dealing with parents and you talk about the hybrid option or allowing them to stay home is that I feel and, that it's very hard to talk to people about risk because they're so incomprehensible. This is just something they just can't wrap their, their minds around. They've been told one thing, and if you try to lay out the data, particularly with children, I find that just an insurmountable obstacle, even with pediatricians. And I try to claim that when you're dealing with children, this is simply not a disease that's really scary in, in any way. It's a scary disease for older people. But for children, particularly the youngest children, most of them, when they get it, they shrug, they shrug it off. You can comment on that. But that affects people's decisions on whether they want to even allow them into school absolutely affects them about masks. So even when they allow it, they feel that it's, they're hypervigilant in a way that, 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 that I don't see with the, the teenagers and the young adults. Um, and how do you, well, I mean, first of all, how do you react to my, my observation? Is this something you've dealt with? And, and how, does that, how does that play out when you try to convince people what to do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's pretty much been my entire year or like the part that's not about schools is about sort of trying to help parents think about like what, like when people say kids are low risk, like what do they mean? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that for me, um, there's a kind of 
I, I try to go in it in a kind of like the, the main way I try to help people understand risk is by telling them the risk they're already taking. So to say, look, you know, when you like, you know, you, you already, you, this is how you felt about the flu. Remember January of 2019 when there was the flu, you thought about it and, you know, you still sent your kid to school and you did this thing. And that was the size risk. That's the same risk you're taking now. Maybe it's even lower now. So that like, in a sense, like you, you must think that amount of risk is okay. Um, and I think that's like, rather than saying it's low, stop thinking about it, sort of to acknowledge it's not zero, but that it is in the space of other risks that you, that you take. That's kind of the best thing I've come up with. I, it's not perfect. I mean, I, Emily, I, I try to do the same thing. I read an article for the Jewish daily forward and it, about camps to telling parents to send their kids oh, to yeah. camps. And I got hate mail. Um, Sure. And because, and, and because <laughs> I, I essentially analogized it to the risks they take every day. And, and that hate mail was not that I was wrong about my analogy, but I was neglecting all these uncertainties that people had spun into. Long these, COVID. Kawasaki's disease, multiple syndrome. I mean, they went on and on about things they didn't know, yet they're willing to give up. I mean, yeah, on the, on the plus side, also when they don't know, we're not going to send our kids to school. We don't know the damage that does, but yet they're willing to give that up. I found it in, in, insufferable and, and impossible to speak to people. Yeah, I mean, it's fair. Maybe Audie's limitation. Emily, that might be Audie's limitation. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think I just keep saying the same. I just keep telling them again, again and again and again. I think the other thing is sort of like trying to help people think about what are the, you know, what are what are the costs? And, and I guess the other thing is I just keep trying to push people to do a little bit because I feel like, you know, the there are a lot of people who are very afraid and that fear, whether you think it's, it's like in data or not in data, like it's, it's real for people. It's real for parents. If you do the first day, just do like, do the first day of camp, send your kid to camp the first day, send them to tennis camp. When they come home, they won't have COVID because they didn't get COVID at tennis camp. And they will be like, wow, tennis camp is amazing. I was around this other kid and they gave me a Pokemon card and I gave them a Pokemon card. And like, <laughs> you know, I got to, and, and, and that like the sort of normalcy, uh, I think is, is makes the other pieces of this so vivid. So it's almost just like push it like a little push. Mm -hmm. little push. So, so Emily, I have a clarification question of what something you said, and then a question for you as an economist on how you would do something. The first one is when you said it was safe to send kids back. And by the way, let me just state for everyone. I personally agree with you. I just yeah. want to question for whom? Like you could imagine a scenario where, so let's say you have, when I say older kids, I mean kids available to be vaccinated. So let's say 12 to 18 year olds. So middle schoolers essentially and high schoolers. So if they can be vaccinated and they're mostly around other people that can be vaccinated, you could say it's relatively safe for them. They could come home though asymptomatic transmission, give it to their younger siblings. Maybe that's okay. Maybe it's not. They could give it to staff who are maybe are not vaccinated. They could give it to people in the community. They could also give it to their families. And so I just want to understand when you think about safety, do you think about it? I'll put it on my marketing analytics hat here. Do you think about it in a segmented kind of way? And maybe it's very safe for that population, but there are some potential collateral risks for other populations. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think I mean a couple of things. So, so one is that you know, fully vaccinated individuals are well protected from COVID, even older fully vaccinated individuals. And so, you know, I think there's, um, you know, there is absolutely the view that if you're surrounded by a lot of unvaccinated adults and you give them COVID, you know, they they could be they could get sick. And I think, you know, in some ways, I, I think what I'd say there is like 
school is really important and we shouldn't be penalizing kids and not letting them go to school because of unvaccinated adults. The other thing I mean when I say it's safe is that actually when we looked last year at how much transmission is occurring in school, it was almost enough. So we basically, right. now, will there be more of that in the case of Delta? I think it's, it's hard to know. It's a super controlled environment. Um, and in a super controlled environment in which people are wearing masks, it is much less likely that, you know, COVID is going to be spread. And, we, and actually, even last year when we did see spread, it was almost all like staff to staff or staff to students and not between students. Um, and so, you know, I think that I sort of mean both of those things, that like the kind of disease risks are low and that the, the chance of spreading is low. Um, you know, I think we're going to have to get to a point where we realize like some people are going to get COVID uh, and, you know, not necessarily at school, but just in general. And that and the goal of the vaccines is to um, is to prevent uh, people from getting very ill. So I wanted to also follow up with another issue, which is um, I'm thinking about the days I worked as a statistician for the educational testing service. And you mentioned about, you know, educational attainment. How would you now I'm asking you to be a little geeky and talk to us as an economist and our listener here on Morton Moneyball. Obviously, there's self-selection. So you can't just look at the test scores, let's say, going forward between people who have stayed home and people who have gone because people self-select to do that. If one was trying to address the issue of the educational costs of staying home, how would you to our listeners, how would one think about starting to address the self-selection issue that's involved there? Or is I mean, it just that, really tough? You know, you're going to use, you know, matching, you're going to use instrumental variables. I, I, there's all kinds of possibilities. It's good. So that's going to be really hard. I mean, I think, you know, I can think about some IVs. I think the first thing that we're going to, that people are going to do um, is look at learning in the places that offered and did not offer remote options, right? So, oh, sorry, did not offer, not offer in-person instruction. So we sort of look over the past year, the like 2020, 21 school year, some places had remote had only remote options and some people had places had in-person options. There are some differences across those districts, but those differences are going to be easier to understand, I think, than the differences across uh, individual students. When we get to this year and we say like who opted in and out of school, that's going to be really hard. You could instrument with like other, you know, other things. And, and so that's going to be really difficult. The, the remote versus in-person um, districts will be I mean, it's, it's a thing a lot of us are working on. I think that's going to be more straightforward to, to at least look at initial data on. So, so Emily, I, I want to turn um, our attention a little bit to a burning question with me, which is the issue of masking. And in particular, I know that Canada has a very different protocol for its children in school. United Kingdom has different protocols. Than that. And in the United States, it's all different everywhere, as we all know. What does the data tell us? Um, there was a, there's been a bunch of big studies looking at schools, but there's no control group. They all like North Carolina study. They all had masks. Uh, nobody, no one did it. So there wasn't any group to compare it with. There has been some recent studies. I, I heard of one that was just done in India. Um, is the cost of masking, which we don't really know how to quantify, does that balance off the gain in not masking? I mean, what, what, what's, what, what do we know about the effect sizes and, and, Obviously, they can't hurt. We all, we all know that, but they help. But how much? And does it outweigh the negative effects that they can communicate, particularly the little kids? I see nursery school kids wearing masks. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's there's a sort of I, I think basically we've in my view, we have overstated both sides of this. Um, so so on the one hand, um, the sort of evidence we have in favor of masking in school is really based on a sort of ge generic understanding of the of the fact that masks are like an effective thing um, in, in general, that they prevent aerosol spread. 
But in, in terms of like actually looking in schools, you know, we don't have a lot of direct evidence that study in North Carolina, which is very good. You're right. They didn't have any people who did not wear, wear masks. When we looked in Florida, we didn't actually see big differences between districts and masks and, and, and didn't um, in, the, in the COVID rates. Now, you know, again, there are reasons to think masks work in general. That Bangladesh study is, is you know, some, a place that we've seen some um, demonstrated success of, of masks. So like you sort of put this together and, and you're kind of working with indirect evidence. You're not working with sort of like super direct, um, direct evidence. And so I think it was a, it, it could be a mistake to overstate the view that like, that like every, you know, that, that this is the sort of be all and end all of, of masking. I also think like kids are, you know, kids are, uh, like fine with wearing, like mostly adapt very well to masks. I think that some of the costs around, you know, learning to read and so on, we're still trying to, trying to suss out. I mean, I guess I, I find this discussion has gotten sort of exercised in a way that is, that is really bizarre and also has, I think, led some people to overstate the value of masks in a way that is uh, political. So give me an example. (laughs) It's political, but also it has made parents think that masks are more important than they are. It has made parents, it sort of like has made some people kind of act almost as if like the mask is a titanium shield, which both is sort of means like if, if anyone in my kid's school was not wearing a mask, it would be completely unsafe to send them, but also makes them think as long as my kid's wearing a mask at school, they could never get COVID. And like neither of those things is, is true. You know, maybe it's somewhat protective. The effect is probably not enormously large. And that's kind of a hard thing for people to parse. We're talking to Emily Oster. Emily is professor of economics at Brown University. She is the author of a new book, The Family Firm. It's out. You can pick it up. She is the author of two previous books. Expecting Better was her first about decision-making, helping people make more data-informed decisions, challenging the conventional wisdom when you're pregnant, and then Crib Sheet about raising small children. Family Firm is following those kids to the next stage up. She's also been on the front lines of a lot of the COVID um, decision-making policy debate over the last year and a half. Emily, I, I would love to hear a little bit from you about what you've learned over the last year and a half. And really, there's, there's two dimensions here. We talk a lot about the data science of it, making sense of data, making sense of studies. Um, and I am curious about that because one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that you went out and created and facilitated the creation of this national database on what's going on in schools. I mean, we didn't have these data and you literally instigated it. And because of you, we have data. Um, That's part of the data science thing. But you've also not only been the economist data science person here, but you've been the, uh, you've been the, you've been the debater, the, the public voice and debate is a separate thing, right? And engaging in this conversation is a separate thing. Now you're, you've done both of these things in your career. I mean, neither of them are new to you, but I'm curious, given the intensity of the last year and a half and the novelty of making sense of this thing as it unfolded, I'm curious what you learned on those two fronts, because they're general fronts. And we, we always fight the data science thing around here. And, and some of us get involved with these policy things. I'm curious what you've learned. And so, you know, I think one one piece that was that was sort of interesting for challenging I don't, that I learned, I guess, let me put it that way, um, is, you know, when we sort of came to this last summer and we were going to get collect these data on COVID and, and schools, um, it, it be, was very clear to me at that point that what we needed was what like the world needed was some data 
that we could use to learn that like the people's priors were so vast, right? If we sort of think back to August, 2020, and the question of like, what is going to happen as we open schools, there were reasonable people who were like, when we open schools, there will be enormous super spreader events at, you know, like just like everyone at school have COVID. And there were also reasonable, reasonable people who were like, I don't really think anybody at school is going to have COVID kids don't really get this. Mm-hmm. And like those were like, and, and that's such a wide, a wide mm-hmm. margin. It was sort of seemed to me like, okay, you know, in order to get really detailed information about this, exactly who is giving it to whom we'd need a really big, you know, academic study with careful contact tracing and following, which we eventually got in December or January. In order to learn, are there super spreader events in high schools at every high school that opens? I actually just kind of need to see some high schools that open. I need to see some basic data from there. So we sort of went into this in a way that was very different than the way I would go into a research project, going just like, let me get some data. We're in such a like data averse, like data poor environment. We just need something. And that like led to an approach that was that was just very different in terms of um, what kind of data we were willing to take in and what sort of how we were willing to to put it out because it seemed so clear that kind of knowing anything was um, was better than than um, than knowing nothing. You know, when um, Emily, let me ask you one follow up yeah, real, real quickly yeah. there. Obviously, you had to be more careful on what inferences you draw from data that are collected conven- you know, by convenience. And so I'm sure you were that way. Was it the case that eventually it was just so clear to you, it, the results were stark enough that you were comfortable taking relatively strong positions, even on convenience samples. Is that kind of yes. the so, Sort of, although by the time we took any like sort of particularly strong positions, we were kind of out of the convenience sample world. So one of the features of this was like, we started with a convenience sample and then there were school states, right? Okay. So then we sort of got to a point where it was like, okay, now I've got everybody in New York and then eventually I've got everybody in Texas. And once you're at like everyone in New York and Texas and, you know, you're at, we're at like 12 million students, you know, I think reasonable people are like, well, but you don't have like, you know, South Dakota. Um, but but also like we were at a point where we had a lot of data. And even by the time I sort of wrote that thing, like schools aren't super spreaders. By that point, we were out of like a world in which we had only convenience sample, um, okay. convenience sample data. Okay. What are the uh, biggest moderators that you have found? You know, because let's assume that it's not all good news. It's not all bad news. Something we talk about here on Wharton Moneyball all the time is what would moderate the effect? Like imagine a school where is it the amount of COVID in the surrounding area? Is it the number of students per square foot in the classroom? Is it, you know, is it the quality of the mask that you're wearing? I'm just wondering what would moderate the effect. The number of people in the community with COVID and that's it. I mean, that's really like when we look in the data, because the thing this is really important. This is really important for you. Please. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just saying this is so important because I'm known on Morton Moneyball and I'd even put in the chat as I'm known as the effect size guy. I want to know what the big effects are and what stuff not to worry about. So when we did. So just to be clear, the way we got our data in, it was basically like how it was just a count of like how many people associated with the school have COVID. So that meant like if you got COVID at the Olive Garden and you showed up at school with COVID and, you know, you were like affiliated with the school, you got coded as a school case. Right. So there's like a sort of natural comparison, which is like how did like you're expecting this to move with community rates because people live in the community. And that's what we saw. It was just like the, the thing that determines how many people at your school have COVID is how many people around have COVID. The actual transmission in school and people want to dial down to like what kind of mask, what kind of ventilation. You know, in in this, and this isn't from our data, but like in this North Carolina study, they followed like 90 
thousand people over, you know, 10 weeks with really detailed contact tracing. And they found, I think, 773 like sort of cases that were brought in from the outside. There were 32 instances of spread in school, okay, from those 773 cases. And, you know, you say like, well, let me, like, what happened? It's like, well, it's like some staff took their masks off in the lunchroom. You know, that was mostly it. There was like a, so you can sort of pick up individual things. You know, there's a teacher in California who took her mask off to read and they, they were symptomatic COVID case and they weren't vaccinated and they gave COVID to a bunch of second graders. You know, so it's like a few episodes like that, but it's very hard to dial into like what matters the most when they, when it's like you're trying to predict something that has a mean of zero. Mm-hmm. Emily, as you were sorting these kinds of data, you were in some cases going against epidemiologists in some of the debate. And we've been grappling with this ourselves because we're, we're, not, we're not as public as you are, but we're talking about these things as outsiders to the epidemiological community. How, how do you come away thinking about the role of theory and models versus almost like naive empiricism on something like this? Like, where should we, what should we learn? What should we as a field of social scientists learn about the tension between those two things? Because obviously there's a case to be made for either one, but what is that case and what are the circumstances? What are the boundary conditions? What do we learn from this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's exactly right. Like I sort of, there were these epidemiologists that came up with these models, the models look terrible. And then, you know, we had some, we had some data. And I think for me, I'm always going to privilege data over, um, you know, over, over models, because I feel like, you know, the models are, are kind of, they should be built to fit, like, they should be built to fit the data, right? Like if you, you know, there's sort of a, a version of this where you, you kind of start with the model, but if the model is contradicted by the data, it's not like, well, the, I mean, it could be that the, the data is is wrong, but I think I'm always going to be much more in the space of like, you know, that's not, um, you know, there's an issue, like we need to recalibrate, we need to figure out what sort of what is not happening with our model. In this space, what I think what was so hard is that, um, is that like the dynamics of the virus are so challenging. And, you know, just in general, like modeling viruses like this, particularly with this sort of aerosolized, like kind of a virus like this that has a, has a high, I think it's the, I think the letter is K, right. There's kind of, there's like an R naught aspect of viruses. And then there's this like kind of concentration aspect, which is sort of like, if you like what share, it's some measure of like what share of infections are caused by like a small number of individuals, like dispersion measure. Yeah. yeah, And this is right. So this is very very asymmetric. Yes. Yes. Right. Exactly. It's very asymmetric. And that makes it really hard to model, right? You get like right. one, <laughs> you know, one bad thing and like you're fucked. And, uh, you know, sorry, do we not do that? I'm sorry. We do it. Sorry. We do it. Okay. Uh, and, and so I think that, that that just makes the modeling really challenging. Okay. We, we're going to, we could talk with you for a very long time and we're going to have to wind down here, but I, I am curious about the, the discourse debate side of things as well. And I'm curious because you're a very seriously trained academic and you're, you've done and doing very serious academic work. And yet you're on this public stage and off, often you have to simplify your claims and your arguments so much in order to be on that public stage. And there's a tension there between what you know and the nuance and the constraints. And the, you know, as you said, on the one hand, on the other hand, this you've been doing that for a few years now, but this really ratcheted up the level of disagreement and controversy. How do, what do you, 
maybe one way to put it, what advice do you have for academics? And I'm not talking about us, I'm about other academics who want to wade into public policy debates on how to manage that tension between simple enough to get the public stage and be heard and yet nuanced enough to stay true to you, what you actually know. I don't think I have a great, like, you know, solution to that. I mean, I've spent a huge amount of the last number of years trying to think about the the kind of one step removed from that, which is how do I take a very large academic literature and translate it to something that, you know, people could read and, and enjoy, like, they sort of could understand, but is not like so, so simplified as to just be a, di- a dictate, right? So when I write about pregnancy, I say, like, you know, is it okay to have a cup of coffee? I really try to help people understand the data there. And, and that's like a, a big piece of what I did during the pandemic. And, and there are parts of my writing during the pandemic that are kind of exactly like that in the sort of like, it's just one step down from being an academic. It's sort of like, I'm going to explain to you how statistics work and help you kind of work through this. When, it, when I was talking about the schools, it got into much more of a space of just like, you know, like schools are safe, open them. Um, and, you know, not quite, not quite all the way there, but like, you know, much closer than I had gotten before. And I found that um, I found that uncomfortable. And I think, you know, there was a point at which I felt like, you know, th- like I needed to do this because there was the possibility then that more kids would go to school and that like, but, you know, the person like and that that was really important. Um, but the the and I was very confident that I was correct. Uh, in the sort of aggregate sense of like, you know, this is a safe thing that we can that we can do. But I think there's always a, a sort of sense in which if I were doing it in academic work, you know, I would I would have more footnotes. Got it. Wonderful. All right, fellas, we everyone has a last question, but we got to go quick. All right. So Eric, Adi and then me last questions for Emily. All right. So, Emily, what can we learn about the safety of restaurants, stadiums, theaters, et cetera, from the work that you've done in schools or anything special to schools or should we like yes. go back to the theater, go to restaurants? What, what, anything no. we can learn? No, schools are not the same as those other things because schools contain children um, and they don't contain adults. And it's pretty clear that a lot of aspects of this are running so strongly correlated with age. And so I, I, you know, are, are stadiums safe? I don't know, probably to some extent more did lesser, but I don't think you're learning anything from that about schools. Sorry, the other way about that from schools. All right. So my question, I would have many, but Katie's going to cut me off after one. Um, <laughs> my perception of my personal risk and anyone, I'm in my 50s, so are we all three, all of us, um, we're all vaccinated. We're relatively healthy. If you take a look at the vaccine's protective ability, when you age adjust it, which is the only way to pop, pop properly do it, and the baseline rate of um, of sickness from the vaccine from the virus, it is almost minusculely small. So, so as as you put it earlier, smaller than the things that I do every day um, that are risky, like riding my bike to work. Um, why Adi, should you this, shouldn't be riding your bike to work. Okay, he does bike that to work. Every yeah, we're not going to get into that. Let him finish his question. <laughs> he does that to me every really time dangerous. I break that up. Emily's with me. Emily's with me. It's really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll talk about that later. Um, but why shouldn't I go to the Springsteen concert, uh, which I went to, or the baseball game, knowing that it brings me an enormous amount of pleasure? I only have one sample path through life. And the risk, if I get COVID, like, and I put that in the chat, many of my family members have it right now, um, no one's going to have a, a serious outcome. I mean, it's going to, and they've, most of them are through it already. Is that, am I thinking we're badly here or am I, or, or, is, or is there something I'm no. missing? No, I mean, I don't think you're, I don't think you're missing that. And I think that, in, you know, in some ways for, for most of us, the kind of next step here is going to have to be recognizing, okay, I feel protected. And so I am going to, you know, be willing to go back to some of the things that I did, you know, that I did before. And I think, 
it's a sort of mistake to expect the pandemic to be over in some kind of like, we've never, we'll never speak about it again. And I think many people will continue to take more precautions about illness in general than they did before, just because of the sort of PTSD, or maybe we've learned something or whatever it is. But I think that, uh, you know, I think it is completely reasonable to say, you know what, this is important to me, and I'm protected from COVID, and I'm going to go to this concert. Emily, you, there's an article in Vox, I mentioned the New York Times thing over the summer, you also have a Vox article, which was even longer, and as interesting, if not more so, there was a line in there that jumped out to me. I think it probably connects to the, your new book. And, and I want to hear a little bit more from you about it. You said, look, these some version of parents are in, making decisions in kind of impossible situations. They can't hope to get everything right in the end. They need to just have a good process. And it, we always talk on this show about process to trust the process and decision, don't have outcome bias and all that stuff. So it's neat to hear you say that. And in, in reading you more and more, it feels like you're putting frameworks out there. And this is even kind of a, a meta framework. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean? I mean, so it's, it's refreshing and really interesting to hear you say, my advice to parents in making these really tough decisions is to have a good process for that decision. What do you, is that, am I getting it right? And what do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah. So, so really what I mean there is when you have these hard decisions that there should be like, like not just like in general, but you should literally have a step-by-step process. And so I spent a lot of time both in the pandemic and in the new book talking about what such a process would look like. Um, I think the kind of key things are to sort of be explicit about what question people are asking. So I think we often frame our questions poorly uh, and then people don't know how to evaluate because they don't actually have alternatives. They just sort of have like one alternative or other stuff other stuff's not really a choice. Um, and then I think the second piece is we, we tend to, uh, in our personal lives, sort of like collect a little bit of information and then think about what would be a good decision and collect some more, like sort of go back and forth between information and decision. So when I talk about having a good process, I tell people, get all the information you need, get all the data, all the logistics, whatever are the considerations, get everything in one place. That's one step. And then there's a step of making the decision, sit down, decide this is the moment at which I'm going to make this choice. You know, I've got all the information I need. I'm going to make the choice. And then I'm going to try to move forward and not sort of keep revisiting it um, as a sort of way to sort of try to kind of move on and and just have more structure. And 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 you're you're saying, look, you can't hope to get it all right, but you will know that you did everything you could ex ante, which is pretty much the the best you could hope for. That's the best you can do. And then I tell people also that sort of at the end of that process, you should plan a time to follow up, that you should plan like a planned revisit of the decision to see if you want to change it in the future. Most of our decisions have sort of the ability to be to be changed rather than, um, you know, like which I think helps with the cognitive dissonance of not wanting to change our mind if we sort of plan to do it. That's more like your stuff, Kate, but (laughs) good. I heard, I heard little shades of behavioral stuff here and there. All right. Listen, Emily, thanks for taking the time and thanks for all the great work. We, We wish you the best with what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Emily Oster, economist at Brown University, author of a new book, The Family Firm, Decision-Making Around Raising Children. She has two previous books, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet. Her third is just out. That has been the first quarter of. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q2 now. Open lines, open topics. 
Got Eric Bradlow in here. Audie Weiner is in here. This is Cade Massey. Shane will be back. Shane's out doing Shane things today. You guys can be in here too. We wish you would. Holler at us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. Great way to give us questions, suggestions, commentary, whatever you got. Also, we follow all of our guests, tweet occasionally, and uh, try to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. You can also send us email. It's our mailbag. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love hearing from you. We read everything we get, and we get as much of that as we can on the air but it's a great way to air things out with us. Again, questions, comments, suggestions, whatever you got. All right, guys, uh, we have uh, kicked off both college and professional football. Now we're going to pick that up in Q3. Our Q4 guest, Ben Baldwin, is a football guest. A chance to talk NFL with him. So we're going to save that for the second half of the show. In this quarter, let's get caught up on baseball. I haven't been with you guys in a couple of weeks. I'm curious how you feel things are shaping up. I'm sitting out here in San Francisco just around the corner from where the Giants play and well, let, are lighting let, the world on fire. Yeah, let's start with that because that's a topic I wanted to talk about. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we talk about statistical modeling all the time. We talk about uncertainty, and we also talk about miscalibration. So just so you know, um, I'll ask you guys a question in case you're not looking at the spreadsheet. I hope you don't look at it. So the Giants are on pace, San Francisco Giants, to win 105 games this year. Adi, do you know what the over-under was at the beginning of the year for the San Francisco Giants? <laughs> the over-under, I, I would guess it was probably in the low 80s. 74.5. Now, here's my question. That's a large error by anyone's standards. So my question is, is baseball over-under just miscalibrated? Is it that we can always find, you know, I mean, to me, this is an extreme. This is 30 games. So can we, yeah, so if, what's the, do we have any sense of the distribution of that era? This is, we, we, we talk about these kinds of things all the time, but we don't. Yeah, know. I know that's what that known, is. That's a known thing. Okay. So what is the distribution of the error between the, just it, to, for our listeners, take the actual number of wins minus the over under. Let's even take the absolute value of that. Cause sometimes you're above, sometimes yeah. you're below. What does that distribution look like? I know the standard deviation it, it, or the RMSE or the forecast, uh, which is the root mean squared error. It's about 11. So, okay. So 30, it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely huge. Now, and just to put it in context, so on, give, 74. Audi, yeah, yeah, play that out for us a little bit statistically. So an RMSE of 11, if, if the average forecast is going to be 81 games won, what, what's like the 50, 50, um, 50% confidence interval? What's the 95% confidence interval? Give us something. Actually, it may actually maybe a little bit better than eleven. That's that's uh, that's um, well, it may be at best best to say ten. Um, but basically, okay. so the, so a, pr- a prediction interval says if you're making a forecast say of seventy four, then you should be right about two thirds of the time within plus or minus ten. So sixty four to eighty four would be that that prediction interval range. Um, and then ninety four ninety five percent goes from fifty four to ninety four. Yes. We're yeah. still outside that range. Another ten, another ten is, outside of that. It range. is asymmetric yeah. because uh, um, be, you know, you yeah, know, right. So it, it's not like you'd go all the way down to fifty four. But just to say, the forecast. The problem is the forecasts are pretty tight. Um, that's because there isn't that much signal. So the the best teams will be predicted around ninety, and the worst teams around seventy. 
Um, even though at the end of the season, you get teams around 100 and other teams in the 50s. So there's These much are just appro- appropriately regressive forecasts because right. algorithmic so, forecasts are appropriately regressive, unlike intuitive forecasts. Right. So just to put in perspective, when you're talking about the Giants, 74 is a terrible team. I mean, when you forecast 74, you're, you, that's one of the that's definitely the bottom quartile of Major League Baseball teams. Right. Um, and so to end up with a bottom quartile being that good is a colossal error. I mean, and, but I have to say that's an extremely rare event. And it's worth thinking about it, why it was missed. But it's a very rare event. It's very rare that teams in the bottom quartile finish in the top quartile. Good. Um, but in the top of the top quartile is but obviously yeah. rare. Well, even 105 is relatively rare, right? Because hitting 100 wins is kind of a thing. 105, give us some sense of how often somebody hits 105. Oh, God. Um, that's, you know, it's interesting. Um, we, we had a conversation earlier in the, in the season about how often teams make 100, and we realized that it's most years, but it goes, I think it's about 80% of the time. 105, I, would, I don't know the answer. Maybe Matt could look that up, but I would guess it's about – 25% of the time? I was going to guess a less. third, so I'm willing yeah. to go for I, 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 somewhere in that range. Could be lower. 105 okay. is really good. I mean, 103 is a very good season. So I would actually say 105 is maybe lower than, than my quarter. Uh, maybe okay, we'll so, so let's talk a little bit about the Giants. What, why, why would we get it? So we might say, look, every now and then you're going to get a 30-game era in these predictions. You pick enough teams for enough years, it's going to happen. But say there's more to it than that. What's happening with this team that was not understood? What's your, what's your hypothesis anyway that was not understood? Here, let the non-baseball guy suggest something. There was a super interesting article in The Ringer just a couple of weeks ago about the way they've hired their coaching staff. So you guys know that they hired the manager from the Phillies who got run off of here, who's a little bit more analytics happy. And he has built out his coaching staff in the last two years in an extremely unorthodox way. And especially drawn heavily on these outside training centers or outside specialists who who we've talked about and who've blown up around the game of baseball recently hitting driveline baseball the guys that work with pitchers they aren't the traditional staff there aren't guys necessarily that played baseball they're just guys who are really good at training athletes and it's totally unorthodox and they had you know so last year was hard to read much into because it was a pandemic year. But is it possible that their development, they're developing players at a different rate than other teams and different than expected because they're trying to do it in a different way? I would have to say it's possible, but um, unless they really opened up what they do, I don't think we may really know. There's really two sides to this. There's the hitting side and the pitching side. I was just looking at that, Adi. So I'm, I'm sorting, I'm looking at the team stats right now. So the San Francisco Giants – it depends on how you want to rate it, but by batting average against whip, uh, et cetera, they're second. I mean, because the Dodgers, by the way, are having a historic season, just so all of our listeners know. If the season ended right now, the Dodgers would have the lowest team ERA since 1985, the lowest batting average against since 1968, and the lowest whip since 1908. Just to let you know how great a season the Dodgers okay. are having. Okay, and the Giants on. are just behind them. Okay, I want the Giants. I mean, the Giants are just behind the Dodgers. I want to norm that for era, given the world we live in right now, and ask, like, basically, how many standard deviations above average or below average are they? How how much are they lapping the field right now? Because isn't Adi the average ERA in the National League historically somewhere in around four, four, four and a quarter? Right. So they're at two point eight two. 
That's ridiculous. But by the way, it's extremely low. And the, and I wouldn't even ask for the stand, distance and standard deviations because there's a highly strong nonlinearity in pitching. Um, once you start to keep very few people off the bases, then every subsequent hit matters even less. And it just it's remarkable what collapses in on you as your pitching staff gets better. They're absurdly good. And you're saying that the Giants are just, I mean, the Giants are just behind it. And the, and the, and the Dodgers piled it up with, you know, all-stars before the season. And they added Max Scherzer, who's, who I watched on Sunday. And it was ridiculous watching him. Just how good he is. Um, Audie, here's another one. Maybe this is since that's since the 2.82 ERA is just the lowest since 1985. Yeah. The batting average, average in the baseball has been historically around 270, right? 260. That's, 260. Uh, okay. That's a historical average. Sometimes higher, sometimes the, lower. The Dodgers batting average against right now is 206. Yeah. That's absurd. So are you saying that the success of both these teams comes more from the pitching staff than from Well, the all I'm saying is they're more extraordinary. Now, when okay. I actually go to hitting, it turns out the Giants, and this is probably the part that was most unexpected. In terms of OPS, there's lots of measures you could look at. They're the fourth best team in the major leagues. So they're, and they're number one in the NL. They're the number one OPS team in the NL. So they have the second best pitching and the first best OPS in the National League. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and, that's... I mean, that's got to this. I mean, who were before the season? Who did we think was going to be good in on the Giants? And the answer is nobody. nobody. (laughs) So where did they come from? Well, this is we have to pay more attention because we don't give enough credit to management out there. Farhan Zaid is the president of operations out there, and he's an acolyte of Billy Bean. He is a literally a behavioral economist from the Berkeley School of Economics out here. And he is running the Giants. And it's taken a few years, but I'd love to give him some credit, if at all possible, for this outperformance. And I I do think it's, I mean, baseball is, you should be able to build up reasonable models of wins based on individual players. And so if you, if we, again, that's going to be with era, but we should be able to say something about a team's outperformance and give credit to somebody, whether it's the development staff or the manager or something, whenever it is excessive. And it feels like this one's excessive. You know, I think there, there seems to me, and it's, it, it is unresearched, and I guess I, I'm the man to potentially research it, but there does seem to be more variance in that individual forecasting than I, I feel like I, rec- I remember observing in the past. And I'm looking now at our, my, uh, Eric and our Yankees, who two weeks ago when we last were on, were on the show, the Yankees had accumulated 13 wins in a row. They promptly Not only that, Adi, just to show you, if you want to go back to forecasting, it, the ESPN FPI Power Index had them as a 98% chance to make the playoffs. Today it's at 55%. That's right. And they, went, they rolled off, rattled off seven losses. And the team just looks like, extraordinary variable from good to bad, just almost every night. And and, and we don't, we don't, we just don't. And these guys were, were terrific. I mean, on paper, the Yankees on at least the the hitting side were terrific and they they haven't been good at all. Uh, You really can't argue they've been good. I don't know what happened. Well, it'd be interesting to know again, like you said, whether how unusual that volatility is. Uh, And you guys are really riding that roller coaster this year. Even I recognize that, but I don't know how unusual it is. Guys, we're going to run out of time, and we got to talk about U.S. Open tennis. Um, I mean, on both sides, pretty extraordinary events. Eric, I haven't talked to you, but that was a heck of a two weeks. It was – let's start with the women's side because it's easier to talk about the men's side. I mean, uh, Emma Raducanu, 18 years old, ranked 150th in the world, won 
the Women's U.S. Open, ranked 150th in the world. And Qualif- so qualifier didn't yeah, she played. She had to qualify. So she played three qualifying matches to win. And then she played seven matches in the tournament, didn't lose a set. And so she won 20 straight sets. Now, I'd love to say she was the most impressive, but actually she wasn't. The woman she beat, Layla Fernandez, beat, I, I mean, Matt can put it up there. I, she beat Naomi Osaka, great champion. She beat Angie Kerber, great champion. I don't remember the other two. She beat Sabalenka, number two in the world, great champion. I mean, she, the four players she had to beat to get to the finals, I've never seen, and she's ranked 73rd in the world at the time, I've never seen anybody go on a run to be that many top players at the time. So, Eric, you're suggesting that we could quantify a person's performance in a tournament. Somebody must do this by how much above expectation they absolutely above expectation performance accumulated set aside the qualifying rounds just for the seven Raducanu only, I mean, not only, but the two players she beat, I know one of them was uh soccery from Greece, the two ranked players. She only played two ranked players and one was like 11 in the world and the other was 16. So you could easily make an argument that Fernandez had the better <laughs> tournament than Roddick. Adi has trouble with it. We know how to make that argument. It's called ELO uh, differential. That's exactly what it does. Every time you beat a much better player, you get an accumulated, an extra bump in your ELO score. Yeah, yeah, I just want probability, like excess probability achieved or something. But here's the possibility. I mean, it feels like on the women's side in tennis these days, I'm not sure that those probabilities ought to ever depart much from 50-50. So maybe it's not that impressive for a 70th to beat a a top 10 because well, maybe the appropriate if it were a calibrated model the appropriate probability of that top 10 player winning is only 55 percent or 60 yeah okay that's the way the elo works if they're if the if those probabilities I, are generally close to 50 percent, then you would get very little change in elo i know but I, I want a very i want a very practical understandable number audi which is just excess probability achieved over the course accumulated over the course of return yeah, and, and there's no question in my mind that Fernandez would have a much higher number in this particular tournament than what's the actual your explanation, winner. What's your explanation for why? We, this is just the most extreme observation we've been talking about for years, which is it's surprising how much anybody can win a women's golf a tennis tournament. I, I think part of it is, is that it's the power of the serve, if you'd like, which really isn't there in most cases. So everyone's pretty much in every point. And so now the question is, you know, what how, how do you actually win the match in men's tennis? Some people just overpower other people. And so I think men's tennis, there's just the great servers just have a tremendous chance. OK, speaking of which, Medvedev got it done. What's your take on on what Djokovic did not get done here? Uh, Djokovic wasn't the better player. Medvedev was the better shocking? player. Is that shocking to you? No. And, and again, I will say this. I would have thought, and I'll say 15 seconds, I would have thought Djokovic was the greatest of all time, except let me just say right now, his record in major finals is now 20 and 11. 20 wins, 11 losses. That's the same as Roger Federer's. 20 wins, 11 losses. Nadal, by the way, is 20 wins and eight losses. Let me also say the three most, I've never seen the number one in the world more dominated than uh, Djokovic was in this Grand Slam when Andy Murray beat him at Wimbledon and when Stan Wawrinka beat him at the French. So I just uh. want to comment that I, I've 
not only did I lose some respect for Djokovic, you can only lose so much, but secondly, I think this is the beginning of the end, and I'm downgrading my expected number of grand slams for Djokovic by more than one for losing this one. I think the young guns are catching up to him. He got lucky to beat Zverev in the four, in the semifinals, and he lost a set in almost every match he played. This is exactly what I said. The greats who are older start to play like the older greats at times, and he's there now. Well, that was my main question coming out of it. Was this more about Djokovic or more about Medvedev? Both. Both. Medvedev played better at Djokovic's game than Djokovic played. The 34-year-old Djokovic who played a very long season. Got it. All right. Well, super interesting tournament, super interesting wrap-up this past weekend. We have another quarter to go. We've got football to talk about, both NFL and college. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now with Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, and this is Cade Massey. Another open lines segment. We have a great football guest coming up in Q4 in Baldwin, friend of the show. Talk a little NFL. We have NFL and college to cover in a short quarter, the third quarter here. Uh, just out of week one in the NFL, first eyes on live action for all 32 teams. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Last night was a thrilling, I think is a safe word, uh, Monday night football. They said something like the first overtime week one Monday night football game since the 70s. And oh my goodness. But we don't have to talk about that game. It's kind of painful. I'm still working through it. But in general, the weekend, what did you guys see? Adi Weiner is sitting there, got a new quarterback. He's a Jets guy. He's a Jets guy. He's learning all about it. Eric, your boys, they got it done on Thursday night. What do y'all, what do y'all's takeaways from the, from the first weekend? Do you mind if I start? Um, no, go ahead. I didn't watch that much, and I'm always the least informed on these topics, but I did watch the Eagles um, win big. And my question for you guys is, what do you do with your priors after that big victory? A lot of the things that I were reading is now everyone thinks the Eagles are a top team. I don't think anyone thought that before the game. I'm inclined to not believe it. Maybe where, where, where do the punditry have to say about that? And then I can ask you after you answer me that. I'm curious to know about the Jets. They were awful. Um, but, but we've heard some, maybe was Zach Wilson surprisingly good or bad? I don't know. Well, the, the, a, good, a good heuristic is a team is never as, as bad as it, rarely as bad as it looks when it loses and rarely as good as it looks when it wins. And the early week one stuff is just made for overreactions. But I will admit that I've been a little short Jalen Hurts, and I remain a little short Jalen Hurts, but I'd love to be wrong about Jalen Hurts, and I, and I might be. So, um, again, a conversation we're going to have in Q4 about NFL quarterbacks, they're really hard to forecast, and essentially he's still quite young. And but how about the defense? I mean, six points? Um, does, can you forecast the defense? I mean, the, 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 you've got to consider no, the, the opponent. I mean, you got to consider yeah. the opponent as okay. well. Yeah, I, I just – I'll say the following um, – Jalen Hurts looked like a good NFL quarterback in that game. And now, whether he can do it over a 17-game season, I don't know. Whether he can do it for the long haul, I don't know. Whether it's because he was playing the Falcons, who are not particularly good this year, maybe one of the bottom three or four teams in the NFL, I don't know. Right. But when you look at what Jalen Hurts did in that game, that's what you want a good pro quarterback to do. He looked good. You have to be at least somewhat optimistic if you're the Eagles, that maybe in this weakish division where 
you know, I was at the Buccaneers Cowboys game. And let me just say, by the way, Dak Prescott, if I forget that it's Tom Brady and Dak Prescott, Dak Prescott threw the ball better than Tom Brady in that game. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a lot younger than Tom Brady. No, no, I understand that. I, I, I would still rather have the GOAT. <laughs> but all I'm commenting on is the Cowboys can score. The Eagles can score. Now, obviously, the Reds, the, sorry, the Washington football team already has a major injury. Heineke uh, is now their quarterback because Fitzpatrick's out. The Giants don't look particularly good. There's no reason why the Eagles can't win the division. No yeah. reason whatsoever. That's a bad division in football, and I don't see any reason. But, yeah, Adi, the, the, Jalen Hurts look good. Let's see him do it next week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we learn anything about defense? I mean, you guys don't seem to, to think much of it because Atlanta wasn't any good. I mean, you just, it's, it's, it's always this trouble in week one. I mean, you just can't over infer any, especially units. I mean, who knows what the Falcons have. And these also, it's first game. I mean, just temper your reactions. Is I mind. think all, the, all of a sudden now we're going to learn something. Look, this is a good litmus test game next week. So now the Eagles this week are playing at home to the 49ers. I'm not saying the 49ers are the next coming of the Lombardi Packers. But if you beat the 49ers – you're at least beating a team that most people think is a playoff potential team or at least a good team. That would impress me if they can beat the 49ers and go to 2-0. and That would be impressive. And certainly if they can hold the 49ers to, let's say, 17 points or less, that would also be impressive. Eric, you mentioned the Packers. I mean, this has to be the story of the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was the worst I had seen Aaron Rodgers play. I, I don't, you know, I don't know if it was because of all the contract stuff that happened in the offseason. I don't know if, it, you know, people can have a bad game. But that was the worst I had seen Aaron Rodgers play, maybe ever. That was just a horrible game. We, it, you know, I keep on saying temper your reactions. It would be interesting to know how diagnostic week one is, and especially um, extreme week one outcomes. I suspect there's a lot of noise in extreme outcomes. And so it's not as diagnostic as it feels, but goodness gracious, so unexpected and such a big number. And it's just such a terrible, seemingly such a terrible way to start the season. Yeah. I mean, I I think the Packers are already, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens, but you're right. You can react to it, but I agree the size of the magnitude of the loss. And remember, by the way, this was against the Saint team who wasn't even playing at home. They were playing this game in Jacksonville. And Mm -hmm. so that was, yeah, that was a very, very poor performance, but we also have to give credit. Look, he only threw for 148 yards. Let's not give him the MVP yet, but Jameis Winston did throw for five touchdowns and no picks in that game. Yeah, exactly. Fun to see Winston in a, in, in a new, I mean, really, it's, it's not all to get, it's more his team than it was last year. And it's fun to see him with a great organization. Going to be curious to see if they can hold on to that. Did you make much of the, this is where, did you make much of the, of the, of the Ravens Oakland game last night? And this is where that week one, you've only seen him once, you know, it could be the Raiders are not good. They haven't been good for the last few years, or it could be that maybe they're a little bit better. What, Lamar Jackson, he had, he had, they made some things work. Sammy Watkins had, you know, the wideouts weren't quite as bad. The runners didn't look so, didn't look so bad, but in the end they didn't get it done on the road in kind of a brutal fashion. Did you learn anything from that game? Well, so let me just say, I love many, many, many aspects of Lamar Jackson, but after watching that game again, I'm saying to myself in the crucial moments of big games, this guy's going to potentially find a way to lose the game. Oh, and heck. Is that I, true? I don't know. 
Well, mean, he has not won a lot of regular season games. It's, it's in a, a lot of regular playoff. season games. Yeah. He hasn't won a lot of playoff games. Well, this and, is a regular season game. So, I mean, was this, you really want to count this? If you want to, if you want to, this has to be bend with a bunch of other wins, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I mean, yeah, that's fine. I mean, look, there's another stat. I know you, I'm sure Kate as a Ravens guy, you'd seen this stat before the Ravens were up 14 to nothing to start the game. They were 81 and 0 under Harbaugh with yeah, a 14 point pretty, lead. This is the first pretty. time they've ever lost. Yeah. With with a 14-point lead, they're now 81-1. and one. But I have a different statistical question for you for that game. Fourth and one. Fourth, Adi, I want to ask your opinion here. There's 45 seconds left in the football game. The game is tied, okay? The Raiders are fourth and one from the Raiders. The Ravens are fourth and one from the Raiders 31. They ended up kicking the field goal. Now, that left enough time on the clock for the other team, the Raiders, to go down the field, kick a game-tying field goal. No one asked this. I'm asking you guys. Should the Ravens have gone for it? First of all, remember, you're counting on your kicker. Now, I understand it's Justin Tucker, the greatest kicker in the history of the NFL. But you're counting on your kicker to make an almost 50-yard field goal. If you go for the fourth and one and you make it, you leave zero time left on the clock. And you get a shorter field goal attempt. So I just want to know, why did nobody ask the question? And I was thinking at the time, the Ravens, especially with Lamar Jackson, who can't be stopped running the football, why didn't they go for it to run out the clock and get a shorter field goal for Justin Tucker? Well, it's a a fair question to ask. It's a good question to ask. As you unpacked it, Eric, you left out one part of the calculus. And that is, if you don't get it, you leave them with the same amount of time anyway. So, and that's not to tie the game and go to OT. That's for them to, to win. win. Yeah. And I think at, at the time, it didn't feel like 37 seconds with no timeouts, you know, on their own 25 or whatever it was after the kickoff sh- should have been enough time. I mean, kind of shouldn't have been enough time. It still took a 50 something yard field goal. 55 yard field goal. I mean, basically, they moved the ball about 35 yards in 20 seconds or something. Yeah. You know, they shouldn't have been able to. It's probably yeah. not makes sense because your point, your, your point is that at best they can tie the game, which makes it a 50 50 proposition. Yeah. So that already slices the probability in half of anything else. Right. Yeah. And just I just think about it. I mean, what, what Kay just described, they had a probably an 85. Well, you know, obviously is it better than average kicker, but it may be a 90 percent chance of making that field goal from from 48 yards or whatever it was. Um, and 37 seconds. That's a, that's got to be a rare event. That's got, what they did has got to be on the one in five mark. Am I am I totally miscalibrated? I think one in five feels about right. I, that I feels about right to me. I mean, Eric said so, they're having you know Tom Brady in his back pocket, who seems to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's by the way, Derek Carr, the the um, quarterback for the Raiders, has the second most come from behind wins in the fourth quarter in the last five years, by the way, yeah. just so you know. So Derek Carr does this all the time, but you're right, Adi, you're probably right. It's probably, I don't think 90%. Tucker's not making a 48 yard or 90% of the time, but I think, I don't think so. Maybe that's his overall, that's his overall hit rate. So it wouldn't be that high. For yeah. Him. It's 90.5%. I remember is his overall hit rate. So it's no way it's at 48 yards, but I, look, I agree with you. You're probably at worst going to overtime. I just remember thinking at the time they're going to regret not going for this. All right, so uh, that's week one of the NFL. We got two weeks under our belt, two weeks plus a week zero in college football. We had a we had a pretty light schedule, but given how light the schedule was, it was a super interesting weekend. Beginning with the headline game where Oregon goes in as a fourteen point dog and beats Ohio State, 
really changing the national picture on two fronts. One, it takes Ohio State down a notch. They can't. They obviously have no room for error at all, and they are a consensus top five team coming into the to the to the season. But then Oregon, people have been waiting for the Pac-12 to have somebody on the national conversation. Uh, UCLA and, beat LSU also, so that helps give some again further credibility to the Pac-12. That's right. So if both those teams manage to keep it going, I mean it's a long season, but. To have someone strong out of the North and in the national conversation, someone strong out of the South in the national conversation is it's fun. It's just a nice change of pace from where we've been. So I've been waiting to ask you this question, Kate, since, you, you know, with Massey Peabody and everything else. Is there a scenario now where you see where the Pac-12 gets an entrant into the college football playoff, but the Big Ten does not? Sure. We, I can quantify that more specifically. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, that's, that's 100% a possibility. Um, but don't be too quick to dismiss the Big Big Ten because of Ohio State. They go deeper than that. In particular, a team that had a big game last weekend and a, big, and a team that has a big game this weekend. Iowa beat Iowa State. The other big game of the weekend was Iowa-Iowa State. It's always an interesting game, and this year was the first time they both came in ranked. In fact, they both came in top ten, and Iowa really took it to them. People are impressed with this Iowa team, and they have beat Ohio State before. They're not worried about Ohio State, and – that's a really interesting story to follow. You know, 10 years ago, there was this, you know, warn your kids about Iowa. They had this undefeated season, but nobody really believed in them. This is kind of a very different place. People actually believe in them. The other Big Ten team to keep your eye on, and we're going to learn a lot about this weekend, is Penn State. They're Absolutely. Hosting, they're hosting Auburn in what might be the most interesting game of the weekend. One, because Penn State looked really good against Wisconsin last weekend, weekend before last Yep. And then Auburn, Auburn is this kind of a darling of the quants in some ways. The quants like them better than the experts this year. One of the reasons is the quants aren't really in touch with their new coach, and a lot of people are suspicious about their new coach. Brian Harson came down from Boise State. Harson was a Peterson assistant coach. He bounced around a little bit, ran Arkansas State for a while, back up to Boise. Very untraditional SEC coach. And so some people think you got to be a certain kind of guy to coach in the SEC. Well, we'll find out. Auburn always has talent. When you run these quantitative models, they load heavy on talent. And they're traveling to college, to, 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 to Penn State, and it's the whiteout weekend. And, Eric, you're a Penn Stater. You got some Penn State that family. How are you feeling about this game? I'm feeling pretty good. I watched the Penn State-Wisconsin game. I thought Penn State looked great in that game. And, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, the minute Ohio State got smacked by Oregon, I started to look to, towards Penn State. And I'm saying, why can't this be Penn State's year? Absolutely. Yeah. But I think now the thing is, it's hard to imagine a scenario. Matt, our, our producer, put in our chat box that Oregon's only ranked remaining game is against UCLA. But if Oregon runs the table, you can't leave them out. Not now. No. You can't. They went to Ohio State and beat Ohio State. They have to be in the playoffs now. Now, could a one-loss Oregon team get over a one-loss Big Ten team now? That's the the magic question at this point. Well, Oregon has the benefit of having some regard coming into the season. I mean, priors matter a lot. It's one of the reasons we think Cincinnati has a shot this year in a way that they didn't in the past because people came into the season thinking they're a top-ten team. By the way, Cincinnati goes to Indiana. We've been looking at that game really since Pat Forty was on our show this summer. And he says, hey, since he has Indiana and Notre Dame, that's a way to prove up their bona fides. But, in fact, Indiana is not what we thought they might be. Notre Dame, my God, Notre Dame has barely oh, gotten terrible. by two weeks in a row. So awful. It, it could be that since he wins those both both those games and doesn't. And doesn't I, that's why I hate. I hate. We talk about the solo show. I hate wins and loss records because, look, 
maybe they'll play better later in the season. Notre Dame, if someone says Notre Dame's on the path to the national championship four, they're not on the path to anything. They should be dismissed from the national championship discussion right now because of how they've played these first two games. That's in I'm, my view. I'm ready. And again, that's a win for the quants. The quants had them yeah. across the board lower than the polls did coming into the season. But here's the big game. Look, I also want I'm fascinated this week. Look, because I looked at this. Alabama's at Florida this week. Number one versus number maybe 10, 11, depending on what poll you look at. And Alabama's favored by 15 and a half. Yeah. That says something to me. And I'm not saying that's miscalibrated. All I'm commenting on is I'd love to see Florida put up a good game. But if you, you know, historically, if you said number one is at number 10, at number 10, and yeah. they're a 15 and a half point favorite, you'd say that's impossible. How could there be that much gap? But I think we're all like, no, I could easily see that being a blowout for Alabama. Sure. Well, the way the way the power rankings look right now, and it's not just Massey Peabody, it's FBI, it's S&P Plus, that the, the, there's a gap with the, the – historically, there's been a gap with the f- top five and everybody else. But really, there's one and then four. One. And Alabama, it, does, it doesn't look like this every season. Some seasons it does. Some seasons it's another team. But this season is one where Alabama is separated from everybody else significantly. And so I'm not surprised by that number at all. Florida, people are a little suspicious about because they lost some of their top guys. But they have been recruiting so heavily and so well. And Dan Mullen so highly thought of as an offensive mind. Listen, last story. USC fired the coach. Week two, Clay Helton out of a job. This is going to be one of the biggest stories in college football because this is one of the best jobs. It's possible that all else equal, this may be one of the one of the top two or three attractive jobs in the country, and it means that they're going to be able to draw from uh, a, 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 a few candidates that are highly. You can of. recruit, and they send a lot of players to the NFL there. Absolutely, right. great job. All right, guys, that's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our traditional guest segment in the time of COVID. Delighted to welcome back to the show Ben Baldwin. Ben is one of the best pro football followers, I mean, follows out there, analyst, writer, aficionado, cognoscenti, all these things, Seahawks fan, all of these things. You can follow Ben at Ben B. Baldwin, at Ben B. Baldwin. He's also an economist. This is our first ever seven and a half years. We are opening and closing our show with Economist. Ben, good afternoon to you. Welcome back. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me. And um, before we get into it, I just want to say I thought last week's episode was awesome, and just every guest was great, and it was just such a great way to kick off the season. So I, I hope we do even close to as good as that. Oh, uh, uh, that's much appreciated, Ben. That was a fun. Uh, that was a fun little lineup, wasn't it? With all these people from around the world of pro football analytics and 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 commentary, um, it was. I felt better informed at the end of that two hours. Myself, for sure. Well, and, and you're the perfect person to roll into week two with. You're, you're sitting here beaming at us. You're usually over on the East Coast, and right now you're in Seattle. You're taking your annual pilgrimage to watch the Seahawks. I'm pretty happy about the way things opened up. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's all right. Um, there, there's a lot to be excited about um, with the Seahawks, um, except perhaps how the rest of the teams in their division looked, um, yeah, which, right. which are all just kind of amazing. But um, yeah, I, I do my Seattle trip once a year to take in a Seahawks game and 
um, this is where I grew up. So it's always fun to be back. And I, I didn't get to do this last year because of COVID, obviously. So this is the first time I've been here in uh, two years. So it's good to be back. I, I wish people could see your face, man. I don't think we've had a guest ever who's as happy during the interview as you are staring out your window at Seattle, Washington. It really makes me happy. That's awesome. Ben, as you watched week one, I mean, here we go. We just came through four out of the last five days with some pro football and um, I'd say lots of interesting things. You, as a real close follower, what 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 stands out to you? What patterns emerged? What new questions emerged? What questions might have gotten answered? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One is is kind of this horse that has been sort of beaten to death by people like us, but it's still interesting to kind of follow how the league is tr- is changing, and that's um, how, how aggressive teams are on fourth downs. Um, this, this is something that. Um, has been pointed out for a long time that um, the, the way teams have acted is not consistent with maximizing win probability and, the, and they should be going for it much more often, uh, especially in, in short yardage. And um, even just in this week one, we, we've seen that in kind of like toss up situations, teams have been much more likely to go for it. And mm-hmm. um, even setting aside the teams, just the commentary, if you're watching a game and a team goes for it, you're not hearing this second guessing. Why are they doing this? You're not hearing as much, Oh, I can't believe they went for that fourth down afterwards. And it, it just seems like it's, it's, it's much more of a, a mainstream thing now, which is notable after 15 years of nerds arguing that teams should be doing this. You know, that's I, the, the thing about the commentary is super interesting to me because I wonder if it may be a place where NFL might be a little more sophisticated than college. So I, I, it kills me. It happens. It happens a lot. Historically, it's happened all the time when a coach goes for it in like, you know, a guy's down 10 points and it's only the third quarter. And it's a, it's a toss up situation and they go for it. And then actually, Oh, it's a little early, a little early to be going for it. Like, no, he's going for it philosophically. It's not a matter of early, but, and then you just know, and this, this is what happens also Ben. And then he doesn't get it. And like for the rest of the game, like, ah, you know, that, that <laughs> 10 minutes left in the third quarter, <laughs> ah, you know, that thing, it just drives me crazy. So I actually, I'm now curious, is it possible that, NFL production and NFL fandom is actually outpacing college on analytics. You know, sometimes innovation goes the other way, but it could be that it's going that way in this case. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. And um, the, the, the media, um, even like in, in post-game press conferences, um, like you always heard that one of the reasons coaches weren't aggressive was because they would get all these hard questions and criticism and everything afterwards. Yeah, and, right. I don't think we see that as much anymore. Um, and maybe it's because fans are more informed and uh, beat writers have to be more informed. It's just kind of this, I guess, virtuous cycle of, of everyone becoming more informed, including the coaches and organizations. And um, the lucky thing for football is that all of this leads to a more exciting product and which is kind of the, the opposite of um, mm-hmm. baseball, for example. So it, it's been, right. Enter- entertainment side has been great too. Right. Ben, I wanted to ask you a question about, I watched a play in the Eagles game. I watched the game. It's very exciting. Um, And the runner did something interesting to me. And I wanted to get your response to it. He ducked out of bounds, maybe intentionally or unintentionally before getting, just before getting the first down, uh, before getting 10 yards to get another first down. And the play was on first down. And I thought to myself, that's brilliant. You just got yourself a bunch of free plays. Yet the response for most people is how come he didn't get it? I I don't seem to ever see them do that. Is there an anal- any analytics beyond this? Is, do players know that they should probably, I mean, I mean, am I wrong to think that that was a smart move to not get the first down? Because then you get second and third and even fourth 
With so we can make this very started. precise. Like what's the wind <laughs> probability added to, or what's the, what's the expected yeah. point situation from a second and one at your own 34 versus a first and 10 at your own 35. Yeah. I'm pretty sure uh, Brian Burke, a uh, guest on last week's show is the one who looked into this at some point from an expected points added um, perspective. And my memory that I'm, let's say 90% sure about is that second one is indeed better than um, first and 10, just, just because of all these um, extra chances you have to gain more yards. Like if you have a second one, it's, it's very, very likely that you're going to get a first down at some point and you might end up with even more yards uh, in one of those plays. So, yeah. So the idea that somebody might've done this intentionally, I mean, it's one thing to know yeah. that theoretically, but to think someone's actually acting on it is really interesting. And of course, Eagles are known as being pretty sophisticated. So now we have this question of what, whether that was intentional or not. <laughs> So, Ben, I wanted to ask you, what does it mean for a team? Like, how would you define aggressiveness? Like, yeah, so, for example, going for it on fourth down when it's the right expected value thing to do, that's not aggressive. So how, yeah, so, how, how do you I, even, no, no, I'm just saying, when, when, when he, how do you even use that term? Is it um, something where there's high variance? I could see taking an action with high variance, but if something's got positive expected value with very high probability, then that's not aggressive. I, I, I agree and I appreciate being called, called out on this because I, I think it is important to get the language right. And um, another, another thing that I think we should be careful about is, is not calling, um, not going for fourth downs, being risk averse because like, are you being, are you being risk averse by punting, even if that results in a lower expected value? Like it, um, people just kind of accept that going for it is aggressive and risky, even if it results in higher win probability. And that, that's probably, uh, we're probably not helping ourselves by framing it in this way. So I, I think we've been trying to not do that. So um, uh, clearly I've already failed there, but yes, I, I fully agree with the point there. Ben, the thing is you have to recognize that most of the early fourth down decisions, the Romer paper was based on expected value, in which case you mm-hmm. can have an expected value risk trade-off. The new models are all based on win probability, which therefore there is no, you just want to improve that. That's it. And there isn't yes. any sense of risk. On the other hand, as a statistician, I'll remark that the expected value calculations are probably much more accurate. And the win probability calculations are really harder to get right, um, particularly the ends of games where things are matter. I know that Brian's speaking of Brian Berkey. He works, he works hard on that. My students have worked hard on that. It's hard. Um, and it's just not the easiest things to get. And, and small points matter a lot. You know, between 42 and 44 can make, make a big difference. And I don't think the, the models are actually that accurate. Yeah, I agree with that. I, so I have a fourth down bot that like automatically tweets out every play. And, and the hardest part is getting, especially the end of game stuff, like getting that right is very, very difficult and perhaps even impossible. So, uh, yes, there, there are certainly situations where that can break down. Well, so um, speaking of impossible, do we know whether Sam Darnold is going to be a real NFL quarterback? And we've got this wonderful experiment running in a few different places around the league. We've got Stafford changing teams from a moribund franchise to a less moribund franchise. We have Darnold from maybe the most to kind of still one, but better. So we've got these changing circumstances, which is wonderful for inference because usually these quarterbacks are locked into the same context you know, like Brady for say 15 years, you can't separate him from the environment and the coach. So we've, it's going to be fun this year to see. I know one game's too quick to react, Ben, but I'm curious what you make of what you saw from these guys this first week. Yeah, I, I agree that this is, this is one of the things that I find very interesting. And is, is something that you guys talk a lot about on the show is the difficulty of separating um, 
individual statistics slash performance from the, the the team context, especially in football. And and that's why I think Sam Darnold, Matt Stafford, uh, Carson Wentz, all these teams place uh, medium to large bets on whether their infrastructures are going to get more out of um, these quarterbacks that um, to some degree have played below their perceived potential, especially Darnold and, and Stafford. Um, it And from week one, you can sort of draw... Yeah, it looks um, good so far. Yeah. yeah. So Carson Wentz looked pretty bad in Philadelphia last year and looked pretty bad um, on Sunday um, in, in Indianapolis. Uh, on the other hand, Matt Stafford looked amazing in his new system. And then um, Sam Darnold is kind of in between. So you can, you can kind of pick which one is your favorite story, depending on what you expected going in. But um, that, I think that's going to be something very interesting to keep an eye on as the season goes on. Yeah, and we've got, you know, less dramatic versions, but more versions around. We've got Winston, we've got Bridgewater, these quarterbacks, a little bit more. We've got guys starting for multiple teams a little bit more than we have in the past. We also have some rookie quarterbacks. And, it, you know, there's always this question of when do we know, when do we know what we have in a quarterback? What's your position on that? And so are we going to know even at the end of the year, are we going to know what we have in the rookie quarterbacks? Do, when are we going to know whether we have Tua? What do we have on Tua? Yeah, so so when you were asking if we knew if we would know at the end of the year what we would have, um, Tua was the first person that popped in my mind because um, last year wasn't encouraging, but it, it certainly wasn't enough to say this guy's not going to make it in the NFL, especially given their um, surrounding circumstances. Um, so uh, I, I think a, a lot of teams, especially these teams that are drafting quarterbacks high, they don't have great surroundings. So they can always talk themselves into if the quarterback doesn't look impressive, it's because we haven't put the pieces around him yet. And I'm sure that's what the dolphins were thinking to themselves last year. And they, they had a shot at drafting another quarterback in this, in this quarterback class and didn't take it um, because they they're still attached to, uh, to a presumably. Um, so the, real quickly, I've heard teams talk on that issue about they, they don't necessarily believe it but they, they it's enough of a possibility that they want to give the guy a chance i've literally heard teams talk about we're going to continue to draft offensive assets here because we have to prove this out and better to prove it out sooner than later so it's neat because it's not just it's taking a very active role in pushing along the inference yeah and that, that's basically exactly what the dolphins are doing so they had the number three overall pick they could have they could have taken trey lance uh, mac jones or justin fields but um, they decided not to they they traded back and then took a wide receiver at number six and uh, presumably that's exactly their thinking is Tua had half a season under his belt coming back from an injury without great surroundings so let, let's drop this receiver high and put all these pieces around him and, and see what we've got now mm-hmm. the downside of this is that if he doesn't pan out then you miss this um very good chance at um, taking another shot at a quarterback. Um, but that's the decision that they made. Right. Right. Well, putting the two conversations together, I mean, we, we might, if, if we're learning so much from, from Stafford changing teams or from Darnold changing teams, any one team is kind of hopeless in figuring this guy out in one environment, unless they really do push around some assets and some resources and try him out in different situations. We say this, I mean, I claim this all the time in non-sports organizations that, Performance management, performance evaluation is almost like fatally flawed because we try to make individual inferences, even though everyone's working interdependently. And we think we have someone figured out, even though we've only seen them in one environment. I mean, you fundamentally can't infer too much about an individual from one environment. I mean, you basically can't do it. And yet we forever think we are doing it. Yeah. And 
and teams basically have to do it. They they have to make these decisions whether or not. Well, yes, 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 and no. They they can move things around. I mean, you know, some you know basketball teams, some hockey teams shuffle people in and out enough to learn something about what a guy looks like with different line mates, for example. Some teams, you know, we have a a a, a coach out here at is it San, is it University of San Francisco, San Francisco. What, what's the basketball? The the goat the oh gosh. Yes. Yes. University of US. So he they run, you know, very religiously collect data on practice and keep score and they rotate guys in because they want to see different people in different environments. And so they they're the only people who actually control this. And I, I think coaches don't do enough of this. You can't do it perfectly, but you can do more than a lot of teams do. Eric. Yeah, Ben. So when I look at rookie quarterbacks, since we're on the topic, I actually don't look at their average performance. I look at their peak performance. And so my view is, you know, if you can play great for a short period of time, now I just need you to do it for more of the game. And so when I was watching the rookie quarterbacks, I looked at um, Mac Jones and I'm like, he made some really good plays in that game. Not everything was great, but he made some really good plays. I looked at Trevor Lawrence. I was like, he made some good plays in the game. I wasn't as excited by his performance. I looked at the Jet game and I watched Zach Wilson. I'm like, he made some really good plays in the game. He didn't do everything perfectly, but certainly not bad at all. Is it wrong to think of it that way? Because I try to think about what's their upside. And I've never, by the way, in my view, I've watched a lot of Tua. And I've never seen him do anything that I say to myself, that's the next Russell Wilson, as an example, who, you know, every time Russell Wilson takes the field, I'm like, I wish I had that guy. (laughs) Do you see? So am I thinking about it the wrong way? Or is that a reasonable thing to think? Just play great in a short period and then I'll just coach you to do it more. So I think there's there's definitely some degree to that in in terms of how teams actually scout quarterbacks. So like there's a lot of talk about tools and traits and um there, there's always the allure of, I, I want to take this guy with great tools and great upside and who has made these wild plays. And um, you can talk yourself into coaching, coaching into like the, the other things that need to be done. And Josh Allen is now the famous example of, of taking someone who had all the tools and is very raw and um, now looks to be like a um, upper tier quarterback in the NFL. But in, in terms of systematically um, like knowing which types of pr- plays early in someone's career translate um, later on. I I think um, someone at, for example, PFF would be able to answer that much better than me just because um, they they have a tremendous data advantage over um, someone who doesn't have access to that kind of stuff. Well, you you know, Ben, you you mentioned Josh Allen, and I think that as if the whole quarterback evaluation wasn't complicated enough, I think it's probably become more non-stationary in recent years than before. People are beginning finally to know how at least to make some progress on developing a quarterback better than they have before. Cause for, for a long time, the received wisdom was completion percentage is like his college completion percentage is the ceiling of his completion percentage. Yep. And, and moreover, it's super diagnostic. And so Josh Allen completely ruins that. And it shows that a guy can change, but he, it, you know, is he a freak or I, I think it's consistent with things we're seeing across sports where organizations now through better sports science are actually developing players in a way that they didn't before. We've talked about a lot with pitchers and baseball. We've heard some conversations with the way they work with quarterbacks, but all that stuff we've seen in baseball, which teams have built into competitive advantages 
we're seeing trickle into sports and into football. And it's not surprising that the first place it lands is quarterback. And so this is going to, this is going to give, you know, for better or worse, it's going to give hope to some organizations and some guys, and it's going to give some false hope, but it's going to make this, it's going to make this, this impossible task of assessing a quarterback even more difficult. Yeah. Josh Allen and um, Justin Herbert's the other example of this, where his, like his statistical profile in college was not, uh, not someone who you would expect to come in and succeed right away in the NFL. And he's, he's kind of blown that away too. So mm-hmm. these are the two prime examples of um, probably us needing to have more humility on saying like what somebody will or won't be um, in the NFL. And we already knew that every player has this great range of outcomes, but uh, for Josh Allen, especially like the track record of quarterbacks who had two seasons, like he did was just not very good. So pretty much everyone, myself included wrote him off. And then right. um, <laughs> that's that. that Maybe he's an outlier, but maybe, like you're saying, it's the case that um, as we're learning more about how to help athletes improve, um, and especially when when it can come to something like the biomechanics of throwing things, which right. is very developed in baseball and translates to quarterbacks um, in obvious ways, then um, maybe we should um, expect that, um, that whatever the Bills have done to help Josh Allen is repeatable to some extent. Well, people talked about it on Monday Night Football last night with Lamar Jackson. So here's another player, same year, and seeming, you know, people think that he's taken a step in the offseason, partly by working with some of these quarterback specialists. And, you know, at least the announcers last night were talking about what a different player he looked like, passing the ball at the very least. You know, mostly he looked the same, fantastic at running, except for a couple of fumbles. Um, Ben, what else around the league has your eye right now? What are some of the questions you're most interested in for the 2021 season? Yeah, so an, another one that I'm interested in is um, what is happening to home field advantage. And this isn't something that is like strategic on behalf of teams or anything. It's just kind of like this interesting sports phenomenon that we've observed over the years before COVID where uh, home field advantage was generally declining across leagues and countries and um, just generally becoming smaller. And then there's this COVID season where there's basically no home field advantage in a lot of places, including the NFL. And I'm curious to see um, what it will look like this year with, with fans back in the stands. Um, okay, let's, let's be specific about this for a second. So, and Adi's done some things. Adi, are, Adi just you know, eats data for breakfast, basically. He's interested in stuff, so just go collect the data. So let's talk numbers. Historically, I mean, when we're growing up, I think we thought of it as a three-point thing. Maybe it was a little bit higher, but it's three, maybe old-timer, it was higher than that. Adi goes out and collects data and shows it just almost monotonically decreasing. Was that NBA, Adi, or is it NFL? Yeah, uh, they all kind of have. I think Ben's assessment is right. Um, the only I mean, football is lower than it was, but it's probably like two and a half, I think, it was before the uh, – before COVID, um, down from three and a quarter from the old days, but sort of slowly going down. Basketball had a big drop because basketball was huge back in the 80s. It was just huge. And and the point I made there was that it seemed to have dropped approximately around the time that they started to charter their own flights. Yeah, just um, travel got more. And we could take it back. If you take it back decades, um, um, you know, when teams, you know, rode buses across the country, it was an right. even bigger thing. So Ben, what's your sense of where things are now and what, and where was it with COVID and where do you think it's going to settle out? If it continues to go down, why would that be? Yeah. So uh, to, to answer the COVID part, so it was basically zero in 2019, which was probably noise slash a fluke because that was before COVID. So like it's consistent with 
um, a declining trend, but shouldn't be zero. Um, but in that season, it, the, the point differential of home teams and the win percentage of home teams was basically no advantage relative to road teams. That basically happened again in 2020, which was the COVID season. And now um, in week one, at least, um, that is what we've observed. But look, looking at one week of um, home field data is right. pretty much not that informative because one blowout in one direction or another can skew it do, do you know what the betting markets have it priced in at right now? I'm guessing it's still in there. And in fact, I think historically it's been kind of underappreciated by betters. Yeah, especially last year, they were still pricing in, I think, two and a half points uh, when the season started, which is just absurd because there are no fans in the stands. And every piece of research we have uh, suggests that the, the primary driver of home field advantage is the, the influence that fans exert on referees. And this is mm-hmm. uh, primarily from the book uh, Scorecasting. Right. Uh, except, so. <laughs> except in Colorado. You got it. Colorado is different. Oh. Colorado does have an additional boost and Utah has an additional boost um, because right. of the, the altitude factor. That's right. Um, but setting those aside, if, if there aren't fans, then we should expect home field to be pretty minimal. And that, that's what we saw last year in the NFL and in European soccer leagues and kind of all over the place. And now it's we're back to fans in the stands and um, uh, we'll see if it's closer to the, the COVID period or the prior declining phase. I want to say one other thing I think we know about college, about um, home field advantage, and that is this belief that it's super heterogeneous is not very true. And this, this is a good one for you, Ben, because there were times when people thought Seattle had this big home field advantage. It turns out these always kind of correspond with the peak strength of the team. And there's, there's, it's really hard to find any persistent home field advantages across seasons, which you kind of think you kind of need if there were true geographic um, advantages. Yeah. There's been kind of a cycling of which teams are perceived to have this strong home field advantage. And, and like you said, it's, it's often correlated with team strengths though for a long time, people thought, Oh, it's so hard to go to the dome in New Orleans. Yeah. New Orleans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that was when they were awesome. Or, Oh, it's so hard to go to New England and win a game or Seattle and win a game when, when those were the best teams in the league. So, right. Um, it, but if you actually compare the relative performance of those teams at, at home and away, it doesn't look like there's any uh, differentiation in, in the strength of home field advantage other than uh, the altitude. Teams. Got it. So. Ben, what about, uh, in, do you follow any coaches with any particular interest, either because you think they're sharp, or you think they're underappreciated, or maybe because you pull against them? Anybody? So for, I, I'm asking this question because I took a lot of pleasure in Urban Meyer having a hard week one. And I think this is something sports kind of provides us. It allows us to pull against people, which is good cathartically. It's good psychologically. Get it out of your system in relatively harmless situation, right? Okay, so Urban Meyer is mine. I don't want him to quit yet because I want to enjoy him being bad for a while. So, but but we could we could ask this in a more sophisticated way. Coaches, super interesting to 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 try to figure out because we have the same problem with them as we do with quarterbacks they're part of a very complicated interdependent system and yet we tend to say well that guy's good because you know his team did well in that stretch of time well he had a big staff he had a quarterback he had a gm populating his roster who do you have any thoughts on any coaches around the league that you think are underappreciated overappreciated who you'd like to see better numbers on so the to answer your question about the the team that is my guilty pleasure for rooting against. Um, yeah, I, I definitely take success. I, I definitely enjoy uh, watching the Giants fall flat on their face. So they're, <laughs> hey, they're, don't you live in the New York area? Is that dangerous? I'm, I'm in DC, so that's oh, okay. okay. a division rival anyway of okay. the local team. But 
So uh, Dave Gettleman is, is the one who kind of yeah. mocked the computer folk for uh, not thinking they should draft the running back at number two overall. And then all, all reports of their head coach make him seem like this stereotypical um, old fashioned football guy making his players run laps and all this kind of stuff. So um, hey, by the way, be careful, <laughs> be careful. You're a Seahawks fan and you have some old fashioned coaches over there. We could we can turn yes. the lens that way. That, yeah, that is. That is certainly fair, although um, to be a homer here, it, I think Pete Carroll does this job of relating to his players and, and treating them like adults and um, doesn't. Right. Go- so he overcomes <laughs> with Neanderthal and he's great culture, great culture, unbelievable yes. culture. To, and yes. thank God he is because he's a Neanderthal analytically. Yeah, that, that, that's right. That, that has been um, a source of much frustration over the years is that for as much as we beat a dead horse on fourth downs, I, I think. I really think going for short on, on fourth downs is like the easiest thing for a coach or an organization to get right. And the, the CX have just not been able to do it for a very long time, which is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of coaches that um, at least sticking with fourth downs um, appear to be very good. Um, so everyone knows about the Ravens and John Harbaugh um, and the, the Browns and Kevin Stefanski. Those are kind of the two darling Darlings there. Um, another coach that people don't really talk about that seems to get it right pretty much all the time is um, Matt LaFleur. And people might raise their eyebrows because he had one very high profile uh, mistake there where he kicked kicked the field goal um, right. instead of going for it down eight at the end of the NFC championship game. But right. setting that one aside, I, I think they've been pretty good on fourth downs. To what extent do you think that, that these things, you, these guys you just credited, it, it reflects the coaches versus the organization? Yeah, that, that's a hard question. And um, I think, uh, I guess who you will have in a couple of weeks, I think, Ryan um, Paganini, Paghetti, yeah. sorry, sorry, Ryan, for pushing your name there. He, I think he, he will have much more insightful things to say about um, kind of how all those things are linked and like the importance of buy-in from the top and, and all those things. And I do think it's important if, if a coach knows that the owner and everybody has his back making decisions, then he's not going to be kind of pushed away from making decisions out of fear of job security or having to justify himself or anything. And then it's much easier to just make the decision that he thinks will um, re- result in the highest chance of winning the game. Ben, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a lesson from Eric Bradlow, our effect size guy and ask a question relating to that with the fourth down. If, if there's a, a coach that's best and a coach that's worst mm-hmm. at making the fourth down decision, uh, what's the difference in accumulated win percentage lost or gained between the best and the worst? Because a lot of those decisions are, there is a better choice, but there's still kind of a close one. And I think the obvious ones, mostly they get right. And maybe that's not true. So, um, so can you get some sense of what's the difference in wins or win probability? Um, off, off the top of my head, I think it's something like half a win per season, um, separating the, the best and the worst. And the the worst decision last year was, um, the Cardinals kicking like a 50 yard field goal down three with two minutes left. And that the win probability cost was maybe uh, 15 um, win probability points. So that, that kind of gives you a magnitude of the, um, the bound of, of how much one uh, decision can cost you. But most, most decisions are um, much smaller than that. So that's, that's, that's interesting. The 0.15 there feels intuitive the 0.5 difference over the course of a season between top and bottom feels low but i love the question and i don't i don't have a great intuition for it and but it's a knowable thing it's a great way to get a sense of are we beating the right drum i mean 
come on, if our whole community is up in arms and has been up in arms about this thing for years and the whole separation from top to bottom is half a game, I, I don't know. I think maybe we should work on other things. Yeah. And I don't disagree, but the, um, the, the work on the fourth downs has mostly been done. So it, it's not like it, it takes an active amount of work. Um, they're like, everybody has their own fourth down model. They're all pretty much saying the same things. So um, I think the cost in terms of saying, Oh, teams should be doing this is, is pretty low given what work has already been done. So, so what, what margin do we think is most productive? Like if we could improve organizations or coaches in any direction and we could go to your Seahawks and do it and nobody else, what would provide the biggest advantage? So this is harder than fourth downs, but my instinct would be that teams, uh, especially teams with elite quarterbacks or passing offenses should be passing the ball more than they are now. Um, and, and obviously this applies to the Seahawks, which are a team that does have a great quarterback and does run the ball a lot. So there's some thing to be gained there. So I think that would be my thing. Number one, what makes this a little harder than fourth downs is that there's this very hard to estimate possible relationship between how often you run the ball and how efficient you are passing the ball because of yeah, right. um, like possible uh, inter dependencies between the two. So I, I think it's um, if we're hundred percent certain about being right on fourth downs, we're not, I don't think we're quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. We beat that drum because we know, we know that drum really, really well. Yeah. Okay. Adi, yeah. we're about to have to let Ben go, but let's, let's get another wonder, question. Is there any coach or system that would be willing to randomize these decisions and get us some real <laughs> answers? <laughs> I'm well, so what we really want to see to be able to, get a better handle on this is basically teams passing more and more and more until we see that there's kind of some diminishing efficiency or something like yeah. that. So right. I appreciate um, the chiefs and the bills because they're the two that have really pushed the envelope on um, how much you can pass the ball without um, appearing to see any ill effects on your, on your passing efficiency. So hopefully they will um, continue to push the envelope there. So Adi, to me real, that- real quickly, Adi, you should be a fan. As long as we're expanding your pro football fandom, you should be following Presbyterian, a college that plays D3. I think it's D3. I don't even think it's FCS. Could be wrong about that. But they hired Kevin Kelly, who's oh, been on yes. the show. He's the, uh, he's the coach out of Arkansas who famously, I quote, never goes for it, ne- never punts on fourth down, won all these state championships in Arkansas, finally a college hired him. It's just a matter of time. In fact, I, we should have an over-under on when he makes it to FBS football. It's going to happen eventually, and he's the one that truly pushing margins and providing some insight on when you get diminishing returns or not. Eric, I'm sorry I stepped in here. No, 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 no. I was just going to comment on something Adi said earlier, uh, sort of off the air about pass interference. It would seem to me with the rules in football today and the speed of the players today, it would seem to me like on first down, if you pass the ball – like a screen or you pass it out to the corner, you can gain four or five yards anytime you want. And so as a matter of fact, I think teams would be happy to almost give you four or five yards on a short slant pass anytime you want. And so to me, uh, I couldn't agree more, Ben. I think teams run the ball way too much. Even if your goal is, well, I want to gain four or five yards. I don't want to set up second down and long situation. Then pass the ball four or five yards. Yep. You know, I asked, yeah. <laughs> let me go ahead and answer that, Ben, and I want to ask a follow-up. Yeah, I, I was going to say I agree, and and well, one of one of the I don't want to call this lesson because it's obvious, but um, something something that has become apparent is that um, like there's there's no you, you shouldn't be playing to set up third and manageable or third and short because 
Um, there, there's a lot of randomness on third downs and conversion rates, even on third and four and five, really aren't that high. So um, if you want to have the best chance of moving the ball down the field, you should try to be avoiding third downs entirely. And, and that means trying to earn first downs on, on early downs. Mm-hmm. How about just one other thing? How about the play action when they do that faking stuff? Um, <laughs> isn't there some sort of unlimited ability to do that and no one ever, ever, they never learn? Yeah, that, that's right. There, there's been a lot of um, studies on, on play action. And um, whenever, whenever people ask, oh, why don't teams run play action more? These, there's been these reasons given, like you have to run the ball a lot to set up play action. Um, you, you can't run play action too much or defenders will start, stop reacting to the fake. And anybody that's ever looked into this is, has found that, like, no, that none of those things are true. And mm-hmm. uh, on early downs, you really should be trying to use it, play action um, at least within the ranges that teams have done it so far, there, there's no diminishing returns or reason to not do it. Right. Good fun. Good fun. All right, fellas, let's let Ben go. Ben, thanks for taking time to be with us. Thanks for all the great work you do. We look forward to stuff that you're kicking out and enjoy your time in the great Northwest. Thanks for having me. You love the show. Absolutely. Ben Baldwin. You can follow him on Twitter. Great follow on Twitter at Ben B. Baldwin. You can also see him at The Athletic. He's a contributor there. And we strongly encourage you to keep an eye on the stuff that Ben's doing. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics for the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen in absentia. He'll be back for Maddie Datz, the boss man who makes all this happen. For Deion Simpkins, the associate vice boss man who also makes it happen. Many thanks to those guys. And thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. 